Hey all you cool French ciders and traditional Perrys, welcome to another episode of Boys Are From Martin, a woman in beer podcast. Guys, I'm running out of popular beer styles to say, so you're going to be learning about some new ones. I just use the BJCP style app on my phone, so just Google those or download the app and read about it. Um, on this episode, I'm joined with Kate Bernat of Good Beer Hunting and Craft Beer and Brewing, which is, a, uh, I believe, an online publication. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I'd like to say one good beer that I drank this week and then one thing I read in the beer industry that I really enjoyed. So one good beer this week that I drank, which I've had multiple times before, but this was the first time I had it out of a can, was Dreaming Creek. Uh, it's a 1792 Kentucky Common Ale. Dreamin' Creek is out of Richmond, Kentucky, which is about 30 minutes east of Lexington. It is where Eastern Kentucky University is. Uh, 1792, like I said, is a common ale. Uh, common ales originated in Louisville pre-prohibition, and a lot of uh, breweries across the state have started to bring that style back, which is super cool. It's a really good beer. It's very malt-forward, but also light and easy to drink. Um, I love Dreaming Creek 1792 because the can label art is awesome, and it's just a very good beer. And they just started canning that one and distributing to Louisville, so I was excited when I went to uh, the store the other day and saw it on the shelf, so I had to pick it up. And then something I read in Craft Beer this week that I really enjoyed was um, on Good Beer Hunting, uh, which Kate, Kate writes for, and we'll talk a lot about Good Beer Hunting on the podcast. But Ravani de Silva, she wrote a story called A Rare Gem or Llama in a Suit, South Asian Women on Navigating and Advancing the Craft Beer Industry. Um, it's just a really great piece on um, how few South Asian or just Asian women in general or just Asian people in general there are in this industry and what they're trying to do to get more people like them who look like them to you know get into craft beer and just kind of you know advocate for you know minorities and people of color to get into the craft beer industry so I thought it was a really good piece uh, Ravani writes for Porch Shrinking so you can read some of her stuff on there as well she does a fantastic job I'm actually going to have her on the podcast in a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. Until then, let's get to the podcast with Kate. Um, as always, enjoy, and thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. I am joined with Kate Bernat of a bunch of things, of good beer hunting, of craft beer and brewing. Kate, how are you doing this Wednesday afternoon? I am doing really well, and thank you for reminding me what day it is, because that is sometimes a challenge. Yeah, I've done a couple episodes where I'm like, oh, hope you have a good Tuesday, and it's like Thursday, and they look at me crazy, but it is Wednesday, so um, we'll just kind of get started with the questions, so introduce yourself and tell us what you do for good beer hunting and also craft beer and brewing. Yes, so my name is Kate Bernat. I am a freelance beer reporter writer. I write, as you mentioned, primarily for Good Beer Hunting, and I'm a contributing editor at Craft Beer and Brewing, and then you'll see my byline pop up other places, too, when I have time and get assignments. So, uh, yes, I primarily write about beer, um, sometimes food, sometimes spirits, sometimes agriculture, um, but yeah, Mostly beer is probably what we're going to talk about. So. so we'll start from the beginning. You attended Northwestern and graduated from their School of Journalism. And Northwestern is very well known for their journalism. A lot of, um, you know, I started in the sports world. So I know there's a lot of people on ESPN and big those big uh, sports networks who went to 
Northwestern's School of Journalism. So why did you um, want to become a journalist in the first place? Uh, yes, actually, uh, Michael Wilbon was my graduation speaker. So Yay, that's awesome. <laughs> there we go. Um, but so um, I've always loved writing and consider it a part of myself. I mean, from being a kid. Um, I was a constant journal writer. I was, uh, I tried publishing my own newspaper when I was a kid out of our home printer. So this, uh, this was probably destined from the beginning, but I, I did a lot of like creative writing and stuff in high school. And I thought that journalism was the practical job was a practical way to make a living as a writer rather than trying to write novels or poetry or what have you. Um, and I also was obsessively a reader of journalism. We got a lot of political magazines at my house growing up and I read all of those. I would read my dad's like fishing magazines. I just, any kind of magazine, newspaper, media I could get my hands on, I was kind of obsessed with. So it felt like uh, a natural way to make a living doing writing. And that was before I learned how little journalists actually make. So <laughs> it's a, it seemed like a practical career in my head. Um, as, a, as a fellow journalism grad, I totally understand what you're saying. Right. Uh, but it worked out for, for both of us, really. Right. So yeah, uh, it had a happy ending. People are always surprised when you tell them you're a journalism grad and you don't do journalism full time or you don't write for one newspaper. They're like, oh, why not? And you're just like, eh, there's no. Uh, yeah, it's like even if those jobs existed, they would pay twenty five thousand dollars a year. Right. So, um, yes. So but I'm, I'm I consider myself super lucky to be a reporter. I mean, it's it's yes. my dream. So and then kind of transitioning. How did you come to cover craft beer? Obviously, that's not yeah. something you know. You weren't writing in your newspapers as a kid about beer. So, how <laughs> did you how did you come to write about beer or want to write about beer? Yeah, um, I think my answer here is similar to how Beth Demon, who you had on your podcast a, a few episodes back, how she came to it, which was through food writing. So, in similar to Beth, I, in college was, um, and, and briefly out of college was working in restaurants and food service and also was really interested in food. And so I was writing about food in Chicago around the early 2010s. And again, like Beth, uh, brewery, craft breweries were popping up left and right. And chefs were actually the ones talking to me about beer a lot and, and beer pairings and beer dinners and how beer was incorporating different culinary ingredients and um, Goose Island's uh, pub brewmaster at the time, Jared Rubin, who is now at Moody Tongue Brewing, he was really involved in the Green, Green City Farmers Market and was a wealth of information about fruit and produce and beer and ingredients. And so I kind of came at it from that culinary angle. And it was just a great time to be writing about it. I mean, breweries were opening everywhere. Readers were excited about it. So I kind of just made it a little bit of my beat because I was interested. So you, you went on to uh, be the managing editor for The Takeout, the beer editor at Draft yep. Magazine. And then the, but the one I'm most interested in is this Montana-focused beer TV show. 
Yes. <laughs> so can you talk about the, the Bermuda Triangle? And what yes. So this, this was uh, a, a great project. It did not live as long as it perhaps should have, but it was an ambitious show. Um, a, a producer um, of some kind of local media programming here in Montana approached me a few years ago and was like, I'm trying to get this um, beer focused kind of travel Montana TV show off the ground. And um, he knew my buddy Ryan Newhouse, who lives here in Montana and writes about Montana beer. And he was like, I thought you and Ryan could be a really cool um, kind of co host y situation for the show. So Ryan and I co hosted uh, a bunch of episodes. Um, we had different guests filter in and on. We went around the state of Montana. The triangle idea was basically we go to three different cities in Montana, explore their beer scenes, and do three different like adventures, um, outdoor stuff or um, cultural stuff. Uh, and yeah, I think I don't know how many episodes I ended up doing six, seven, something like that. It didn't didn't last as long as it could have, but it was super fun. I'd never really done TV, which is a whole different ball game. Mad respect to people who do TV. That is, I was not a broadcast journalist. So uh, I had to learn what to do with my hands yep. uh, was my big, my big issue. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the beer muta triangle, which if it ever got revived, I'm, I'd be ready. <laughs> I just love the name beer muta triangle. Like I did not come up with that, uh, but I appreciate a good, a good pun. So yeah, people always tell me they love the name of my podcast and I'm like, I didn't come up with it, but I wish. Oh, I really? Well, it was a friend. All the credit. I, I do give him all the credit, but I wish I had thought of it, but I'm not that funny or clever. Um, so we mentioned in the beginning, you're a reporter, writer for good beer hunting. You focus on set your sightlines reporter. So tell people what, mm -hmm. you know, the sightlines part of good beer hunting is. Yes. Uh, such a good question because good beer hunting has so many mm -hmm. parts and so many cool stories that are being told there. And, um, yeah, I think it can get maybe, uh, confusing for some people who come at good beer hunting from our podcast or from certain lanes. So, uh, sightlines is basically our news and analysis section. So that is headed up by um, Brian Roth, my editor and myself, and we have some overseas reporters as well. Um, but we're kind of the breaking news and analysis portion of the site. So that's my, that's the kind of reporting I love to do. And uh, it's great to be on the front lines when news breaks in beer. So yeah, so kind of transitioning to that is what has it been like to be a breaking news reporter in beer during COVID and the global pandemic? Did you guys, did you see more breaking news stories or less or what was kind of mm -hmm. your pandemic? I guess, I mean, still ongoing. Things yeah. are a bit more figured out, but what was it like in the beginning? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's so hard to even sort of cast my mind back to that. But um, I feel like actually the pandemic started pretty, not that long after I had joined Good Beer Hunting. So I started writing there in, I think my first thing was published like December, 2019. So I'd only been there a few months. And then it was, um, I actually took off for a, um, about a month to go on my honeymoon. I got back from my honeymoon, March 6th. 
So uh, things really hit the fan after that. Um, and it was it was a really different type of reporting than I thought I was going to be doing. Obviously, now I'm reporting on things like public health and a lot of um, legislation, which I was sort of used to doing. But I mean, it was just totally different stories than than I thought I would be covering. I don't know if it's more or less breaking news. I think it's just of a different sort. I mean, there's always there's always news in beer. There are a thousand stories I want to write that don't get written because I am one person. Um, but yeah, I think it was more just the nature of the news changed. And what I did notice was that, you know, usually writing about beer is fairly fun or at least neutral. <laughs> and suddenly I'm calling people who are closing their businesses or who have had employees get sick or are in danger of of losing a dream that they've built for a decade and really employing more human empathy and um, and and having harder personal and emotional conversations um, was something I, I don't tend to do with beer reporting as much. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to sources, obviously who were super candid and um, yeah, we all, we all, got through those stories together, so. This might be kind of a, a question you might not be answered, but you know, do you think as a writer and having to cover some of these stories that aren't as fun changed you as someone, changed you as a writer, as someone who covers, you know, craft beer? Like, I don't know if you'll be more, what I'm trying to say, if you'll, you'll, the stories you write going forward will be different than the ones you normally would write when we get back to normal. Yeah, I, I do think that's safe to say. And I, I feel like you, I've, I've heard you talk about um, ways in which, you know, your approach to reporting and your approach to conversing with people has changed just as you do more podcast episodes and things right. like that. I think we all grow, but I, I, I would say that, yes, I, I do a lot more kind of gut checks. I feel like with my sources now, just like, Hey, am I, how are you doing today? Like, how am I catching you today? Um, and also I've started when I interview people about sensitive topics like harassment or discrimination, I've started explicitly telling people that they can take breaks. Like before we get started, I'm like, Hey, if you need a minute or you just want to continue this conversation later, or you just don't want to continue this conversation. Um, so I've started doing that, which I think is just a good across the board thing that I would like to carry forward with difficult stories. Just like, hey, if you need to kind of take a break or push pause for a second, feel free. Um, so I hope I carry that forward from this year. You mentioned, you know, talking, you know, being more sympathetic, not sympathetic, but, you know, showing empathy with your interviews. Would you think one example was that when you uh, wrote about the Boulevard story? Is it stuff like that? Yeah, so I didn't actually interview any employees from Boulevard for that story. And I kind of got meta in that story and talked about why I didn't um, right. in that particular instance and about how it, there was so much already out there mm -hmm. reported about these women's experience. And um, I just thought the facts are out there 
it, you know, the basic facts are out there. What is to be gained by me asking these women to repeat a really difficult, right. a really difficult story right now? Um, so I made that decision and that was partially informed by, I had done, so I had done primary interviews and reporting on the, um, on the harassment and abuse that had gone on at Brewery Bavana and Bita Manda in North Carolina. Um, and that story involved talking to people who had experienced some pretty difficult, um, difficult things. And yeah, I think I just, it made me more conscious of, do I, do I need these people to repeat what is already out there, what they have made statements about. Um, so yeah, I think that was, again, my empathy, hopefully growing a bit and, and influencing the way practically I do reporting. I, you know, I haven't, you know, I haven't ever had to write a story about something as serious as sexual you know, harassment in the workplace or anything of that nature. And I'm asking you as a fellow journalist, it's like, how do you approach those stories without, you know, I feel like I would get really emotional and, you know, take the story to a level where it probably doesn't need to be, you know, it's gotta be somewhat unbiased. How do you manage showing your emotions in the story, being a good journalist and also like trying to educate your readers about the situation and why it's wrong? Yeah, it's, it's, it is difficult. And uh, I mean, you just throw allegedly everywhere. Um, <laughs> number one, um, you, I have luckily, uh, I have had the opportunity to have um, lawyers read through mm -hmm. my, some of my work before publication. Um, but I, I mean, just from a, an actual, you know, sort of empathy versus objectivity kind of thing. I don't think, I, I'm not a cyborg, right? I get up, I do get affected by, by stories people are telling me. And I think, you know, I try to maintain obviously composure and, and professionalism, but I think it's okay to let people know that what they're saying is actually registering with you. I think it's okay and build trust with sources to say, wow, that, sounds incredibly difficult. Wow, that's hard for me to process. Or, you know, yeah. I mean, you're having a conversation with someone, what you end up crafting that into with all your allegedly's and, and how you frame it, um, you know, is, is kind of a question for later in the reporting process. But in that moment, I don't see the harm in, in sharing emotion with someone. So, uh, and again, just super grateful that I've talked to sources who have been strong enough to have those mm -hmm. conversations. It, it, it is impressive to me. Yeah. I personally like when some stories have emotion because you can, you can sometimes feel it. You can feel those emotions through the story of what you're reading and really resonate. It, it makes a bigger impact if they're just words that don't mean anything to you. Yeah. Uh, and it, I think it's inevitable too. I mean, if you feel right. passionately about something, you can try to stifle that as much as you want. But I, I think somehow at least for me, I feel like I can, I can read that from other people's work too. And kind of transitioning away from that, what has been one of the stories, whether if it's with the GBH or something else you've done, what's been a story you've been most proud of that you've written and published and been able to share with, you know, the world or the. Ooh, yeah. Um, 
I was really proud of a story that I wrote for Montana Quarterly, which is a magazine, obviously out here in Montana. Um, and it's not beer specific. I mean, they do everything. Um, my story was about a group of apple trees that exist on um, on a um, homestead that belonged to Chief Plenty Coup, who was the last true chief of the Crow, the Mountain Crow people. Um, and he planted these trees, I mean, over a hundred years ago, they're still standing. It's a pretty incredible um, testament to the where these trees are, the care that people took um, in them. And um, now scientists are actually trying to study these particular apple trees to find out what makes them so resilient and disease resistant and able to live in a pretty harsh climate. So that story was really exciting and important um, for me as a reporter because I, it was weaving agriculture and history and culture and a culture that is not my own. So that, so I felt a special duty to, to correctly convey um, the history uh, of Chief Plenicu and of his descendants. And um, anyway, it was, a, it was a really challenging story for me to write, but in the end, I'm really proud of it. And um, it was uh, also, it was in the middle of the pandemic. I was supposed to go out to this state park, Chief Plenicu State Park and visit this, um, visit these trees and then there was a pandemic and um, the Crow Nation wasn't permitting people to visit, understandably. Anyway, it all got written <laughs> despite it all. So I think that story itself is a story of resilience because it took a lot to get it right. done. Yeah, do, so I'm really happy about that one. With these trees, do they use these apples for anything? Obviously like, I don't know, cider, you know, hard or just regular cider or yeah, so I learned about these trees through cider friends of mine, but it's it's my understanding that um, the apples haven't really been used for any kind of cider or beverage. In the past, they um, uh, were used for um, like pies and just you know snacks and eating and that kind of thing here and there. Um, but back uh, during actually Chief Plenty Coup's time, they were um, like a real source of, of fresh fruit for, um, for his family and for the people that lived near there. So they have a history of really sustaining people in a real way. Um, now I think they're a little more ornamental and maybe someone grabs right. them and has a little snack here and there, but, uh, no, no cider or anything, but the, um, the genetics from those trees have been you have been like repropagated and grafted onto rootstock, and you can buy Chief Plenty Coup apple trees now at some nurseries in Montana, and then you could make your own cider or or bake or whatever you want to do with them. So maybe one day they will be. Side question: favorite apple type? Of oh apple. my gosh! Oh my gosh! Uh, apples are a great topic of debate at Good Beer Hunting. So all my oh, colleagues there are like there's gonna one, be there's two right answers in my opinion. Macintosh. Ooh no. <laughs> Honeycrisp honey when it's in season. And then uh -huh. Gala, Gala all year round. Gala's good. 
I say Macintosh because they grow very well here in Montana okay. and I can get local Macintosh apples and they're really tasty. That I don't know. Sense. You guys, maybe the rest of the country gets like some pretty garbage Macintosh, but uh, our Macintosh, I think are delicious. They make great cider and they're good for eating. I'm going to stand by that. <laughs> Guess I got to come to my Montana to try some uh, Macintosh apples. Please do. I will, uh, I will mail you some delicious Macintosh cider from Montana if you would like some it is great I am that person who eats an apple a day good that's what that's you're keeping the doctor away yes I Uh, am are you a cider uh we have we actually crazy thing we have two cideries here in Kentucky is this me we have yet two cideries here and they're both in Lexington so one kind of does like the crazy ciders, like, you know, strawberry, peach, and then one does a very traditional, they're like dry ciders. I prefer those because I don't, I can't do sweet drinks. Some of their ciders mm-hmm. are okay, but nothing more than one, but not necessarily a cider person, more just straight beer, but I will always try cider, especially if it's good cider. Um, yeah. And like I said, I like more of the dry ciders. Yeah, for sure. Um, you've, you've won one of the things you know, super cool about you and is that you've won some awards for the stuff you've written, which obviously as a journalist, that's something you strive for. Um, sorry, my dog is right next to me, not behaving. Um, so you won, let's see, second place for best local reporting, second place for best national or international reporting and third place for best business writing. So talk about each of the stories and, um, yeah, just what they were about. Yeah, let me, I'm going to have to, I'm calling up my, um, my LinkedIn here so I can remember which story was which. Um, give me one second. Uh, I, so these I, were, while you're doing that, these were awards for the North American Guild of Beer Writers, which is what a lot of um, people who cover the beer industry are involved in, including myself. Correct. Um, yeah, so um, I would definitely give a shout out to the North American Guild of Beer Writers for other writers. It's a great thing to be a part of. I've learned so much by being a part of it. Um, but yes, the awards are are a cool um, thing that we all look forward to every year. So the business writing story was um, called Coming In Hot With The Cold Snacks. <laughs> it was about um, a beer brand called Montucky Cold Snacks, which was founded here in Montana and is kind of a, uh, it's trying to be a competitor to like a PBR or whatever your fizzy yellow lager of choice is. Uh, It sells at a pretty comparable price point to PBR. They contract brew it. Um, It, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm offending them when I say there's nothing like revolutionary about this beer but it's their branding is fantastic they donate a lot to charities and they've been really really successful so it was sort of a business story examining how they've been successful in rivaling some of those um some of those big brands and how they make their branding work um local reporting was a story about exploding beer cans and um, mislabeled ABVs from Indiana's 450 North Brewing, which was kind of an issue that blew up um, in the early part of 2020, uh, blew up literally and figuratively. And um, what I was looking at there was sort of the reaction to it. Like some customers just truly did not care that these cans were exploding and that the ABVs were mislabeled. 
And it was kind of exploring that disconnect between drinkers who do care, drinkers who don't care, the industry trying to hold itself to good quality standards. Um, so yeah, kind of examining like the, the reaction and the various camps that were forming around this issue. Um, and then for national reporting, um, that was a story called Say It Out Loud, Who Do Breweries Talk About When They Talk About Community? And that was really written after um, the Black Lives Matter events um, this spring and summer in the wake of um, George Floyd's killing. And it was sort of think, I was speaking to breweries about the word community, what that means, how they practically put that into place in their tap rooms, especially if they are breweries in, um, in majority black neighborhoods um, and how community is a very vague word unless you commit to it in a specific way. So um, again, that was a really challenging piece to write. And um, I'm again, very grateful to sources who chose to speak to me for that story. I just Googled 450 North, just those two words, I guess, and your story is the second one that comes up, so. It was quite, I couldn't believe how, how, how long that story kind of like went on. And then I just wrote again about exploding cans from other breweries uh, this week. So I guess I am just the exploding can reporter <laughs> now. Um, it continues to, continues to happen. And it continues to boggle my mind. I don't know. That's, again, that's a whole nother conversation for another day it's yeah I mean there are people who really don't see the issue and they and they communicate that to me and they're like mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm making a fuss over this and I'm like I don't know of any other consumer packaged good that I buy that <laughs> explodes so that's why I'm making so I'm writing about it um yeah I don't, I don't I, buy pasta and have to put it in a lockbox <laughs> Someone, um, yeah, someone, I've seen it compared to like, well, if you buy raw meat from a grocery store, you have to refrigerate it. I'm like, these are different products. We're, ta we're talking about consumer packaged goods versus like raw food. Like, yeah, all right, man, I'm not really seeing that as a, a, an equivalency, but oh, okay. <laughs> Um, I prefer to not have to treat my beer like raw meat. That's just me. I, as a vegetarian, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah. You're like, please don't, please stop with this analogy. Yeah, do not compare raw meat to beer or I will not drink beer anymore. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so sorry. It is okay. Um, and then kind of, you know, my final like beer related question is I've had beer judge certified program certified beer judges on. It's a, it's BJCP certified uh, beer judges, but I've never really been able to ask them, you know, about being a beer judge. And so I wanted to take this time and talk to you about it. So what, you know, how do you become a BJCP certified beer judge? Uh, you study and you take a test. <laughs> so I was lucky to be studying for this and preparing for the exam when I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and there was an excellent 
homebrew group there, the Arizona Society of Homebrewers. Shout out to Ash. They are great. And they had essentially prep groups, study groups that uh, I went to that were taught by um, Dennis Mitchell, who's an excellent instructor, teacher, person. And um, anyway, so we, we tasted, we studied, we went through the guidelines, we learned about how you actually take the exam, which is a written exam, but has tasting components mm -hmm. and writing. So um, yeah, so I think I probably studied for, I don't know, six to nine months and then took the exam um, and passed, thank God. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you can move through the BJCP ranks as you do more beer judging. So how, um, what's the difference between those exams and the Cicerone? If you've had, are you a Cicerone? I would assume you are. I am not. No, oh. I'm actually not. Um, not even level the, one? I'm a certified beer server. Yeah, well, it's level one. Yeah, I'm taking the online test. Yes. Um, the difference is Cicerone, I believe, is really focused on beer service and people in the beer industry serving, presenting, talking about beer. BJCP is essentially set up to judge homebrewing. I mean, it obviously works for commercial beer as well, but they have kind of different aims. Like BJCP, I think, is a lot about technical tasting and stylistic description, which is a part of Cicerone, but Cicerone also has like do you know how to take apart a keg coupler? And do you know how to mix gases for a draft right. system? And um, because at the time I was really just interested in kind of like the sensory mm -hmm. portion of beer, I went more with the BJCP route. But I mean, obviously mad respect to Cicerone and what they do. Uh, right. But I, yeah, that's what I kind of see as the two distinctions there. And then what's, what's been the coolest competition that you've been able to judge? Mm. Have you done any of the big ones like JBF or? I've not done JBF. Um, I did the Montana, um, the Montana Fall Brewers Festival every year is really, really fun. And I've judged that a few years in the past. Um, things have been on hold because of COVID and there hasn't been as much beer judging. I would love, I mean, something like JBF would be the, the Holy grail one day, but I really love judging homebrew competitions. I think it's super fun. I think it's really exciting and to see people's passion and like handmade, handmade stuff. That's so good. I've had amazing, amazing homebrews that, uh, I can't believe you know, weren't made on a professional system. And uh, I love like the passion about homebrewers and yeah, I'm just missing those homebrew competitions real hard these days. Uh, well, hopefully we are sooner than later getting back to those. Um, I really, really hope so. Okay. And now, you know, the most important part of the podcast, you are a chicken owner. And if you know me, <laughs> I have always wanted chickens. I yeah. obviously not to eat because vegetarian, right. but I think owning chickens and like giving out eggs, like whenever I can find like people who have chickens to get eggs, somebody in my neighborhood has one. I just want to be like, Hey, can I get some eggs? Like I'm in a very yeah. like populated area of Louisville and you just like walk down the street and they have chickens. So yeah. how many chickens do you own and what's it like being a chicken owner? And what's, well, what's the hardest part? Okay. Well, so I would like to say, Kinsey, I was once, I was once you, just a girl with a dream of owning chickens and eating fresh eggs every morning. And 
you too can live that dream uh unless you are in an apartment then probably not but um so, so that's right now I'm, I'm stuck i'm in an apartment right now <laughs> that that makes it challenging i would not recommend them for apartment living but um so i formerly at my height i had six chickens right now i'm down to two um due to some losses uh relating to raccoons Ooh. and also illnesses um but i'm planning to get a new batch this march um the two i have are great um the hardest part for me i mean it's hard predators are hard mm -hmm. raccoons so it's raccoons uh, raccoons and then oh my god me. raccoons are gnarly they will they will take down i mean chickens are not like that small right. and they're really feisty like they will scratch and you know so the raccoons i don't even they're terrifying um but also a few people know this story but i um <laughs> when i first had chickens a few years ago i also have a black lab uh and she ate my first batch of chickens oh, There's no other way to uh, uh she actually she didn't eat them she just killed all of them when they were small and it was insanely traumatizing for me yeah. um we've since sorted that out with some training and um fencing um but that was like incredibly rough i came home um from running some errands and i was like my it's quiet in the backyard Whoa. and there were just feathers everywhere it was really bad um so if you have a dog uh you know just do some really serious training with the chickens first um would be my advice to you <laughs> learn from my mistakes do you name your chickens yes okay good answer <laughs> so yes the last two chickens i have now are named tina and red chicken so <laughs> red chicken had a name at one point and then she just became red chicken red chicken i thought you say like tina and amy for like tina fey and amy poehler and that would have been great they were at first they were all named for female vocalists so mm -hmm. it was like a tina turner and nice. i had like joni and left eye and i had a couple different names um but yeah now it's just tina and red chicken till the next batch so you i'm assuming you just use them for fresh eggs in the morning yep uh yeah they're great for eggs they're great yes or anytime really i eat a lot of eggs because of it um yeah fresh eggs and they're also great um i have some other we have some other gardens so the chickens um droppings on their hay and stuff are actually really great um fertilizer for the mm -hmm. soil um i give the chickens like kitchen scraps that reduces trash and compost right. so they're really kind of a neat little um all-around fun i think animal to have if you have space for them have you ever given them um oh why am i drawing a blank like the grain, uh, like old or grain used uh, after a uh, oh. grew. Spent grain, yeah. Spent grain. I, I couldn't think of that word. I was like, what? what's the word? <laughs> spent grain, yes. No, you're good. I, um, yes, I got some spent grain from a home brewer friend, probably in exchange for eggs. And uh, the chickens 
love it. They go crazy for it. In fact, I can't give them all that much at once because they'll eat too much of it and like not eat their good regular chicken food. <laughs> right. Um, but they're obsessed with it. They will like fight each other over it. And do, do they prefer a certain type? Like we have the, I work at a brewery and the farmer comes and he says his pigs love like the darker malts. For like funny, you know, I don't know if I, I think I only got one big kind of bucket from my, um, friend and I, I froze it in mm-hmm. okay. the bag and gave it to them. So I think I only, I, I don't think, um, my chickens have discerning palates yet, but maybe, you know, they will develop a craft beer. Well, as, maybe if they, <laughs> once they start doing this, they can also become a beer judge certification. Uh, yes, they can do sensory analysis. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of spent grain is best for chickens and livestock? That's that's all their market that the beer world hasn't tapped into yet. That it's it's oh. there's something out there. Maybe I should uh start um, yeah. working on trademarking that now. You found an unfilled niche for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> and then you know you've been talking a lot about Missouri, or Missouri, uh, Montana, and as someone who's very unfamiliar with the state of Montana, what is the beer scene like out there? What, what's the big city with like the most breweries or some of the big cities with breweries that people were ever in Montana looking to hit up some breweries as well? Yeah, um, Montana's beer scene is great. People told me that before I was going to move out here and they have proven totally right. Um, I think why it's such an under, under recognized kind of brewing gem is because a lot of the beer that's brewed here in the state stays in the state. Um, it's a big wide state that's not very populated. Mm-hmm. So things stay kind of local. Um, I live in Missoula, which has, oh gosh, probably a dozen breweries by now for a town of 70,000 people. So um, we're, we're a pretty heavy hitter in terms of the, the state's beer scene. I, I think Missoula has a really top-notch beer scene as well as Bozeman has some great breweries. Um, Great Falls has wonderful breweries. Uh, and then, I mean, there's great beer in just some really cool small towns in Montana. So if you're just kind of on a cool road trip to Glacier or Yellowstone or something like that, chances are you're going to be able to also get some good beer while you're, while you're out here. Um, a lot of, uh, maltier styles for sure. Like, I mean, every brewery makes IPAs obviously, but there is a real focus on some of the more malt driven stuff, um, which if you are like me, that's really cool. I like malt a lot. So, um, yeah, that's been a really nice and refreshing part of, uh, living out here is a lot of malty beers in the winter when it's super cold. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So now we will move on to the, the last part of the podcast, which is the rapid fire and then two <laughs> questions. I know you're familiar with them, but we'll just go ahead and we'll jump right in. So, Six pack of 12 ounce cans or four pack of 16 ounce cans? Six pack of 12 ounce cans. If you're drinking straight from it, a glass or a bottle or a can? Ooh. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm overthinking this. A uh, bottle. A New England or West Coast IPA? West Coast. Stout or Porter? Stout. Gosa or Berliner Weiss? Berliner Weiss. Seltzer or cider? Cider. 
<laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> after your whole after your, your Apple story. <laughs> uh, peanut butter or coffee in your beer? Coffee. Oktoberfest or pumpkin beer? Oktoberfest. Uh, brewery cats or brewery dogs? Brewery dogs. Chickens. I guess we could throw brewery chickens in there. Brewery chickens if that was an option, but uh, I, lo I love doggies too. Yes. Uh, favorite beer city that you've been to? Oh man, um, yeah, right now I am crushing very hard on Seattle. Ooh. Yeah. Haven't I, been that far out west yet. Come, come on, the water's fine, it's great out here. <laughs> and then favorite beer glass style? Oh, sorry, beer glass? Beer glass. Style? Uh, ooh. Tulip. Nice. That's what I'm drinking out of. And then favorite hot variety? E Saz. Ooh, different. Yeah, and then, I need, yeah, I need that for my, my Czech beers. Makes sense. Uh, go to beer right now. What are you crushing? Ooh, um, maybe it's just because I said Saz, but uh, Pilsner or Cal. Uh, I've, I've long loved that beer, but I... I make sure to kind of like revisit it every so often. And I'm, I'm in the middle of another love affair. So this is, if you can, you probably can't see behind it. Hold on, grab it. I see it. Oh, I can uh, see it. My lunchbox. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, my pills in our, yeah, I got that a couple years ago with like, came with like three beers in it. And I just yeah. saw the lunchbox. And for like two months, I used it to take the work with me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. People make fun of me, but no, no, uh, it's just on my uh, beer wall or my beer shelf. It looks great. It looks great. But Pilsner Kell, definitely yeah. one of the best OG Pilsners. Yeah. If, if you could go on any beer vacation right now, where would it be and why? Obviously, no COVID involved, just a beer vacation. Yeah. I've actually been trying to plan a backpacking trip through Germany's Black Forest and um, do some, like, visit some of the Kellers there. Mm -hmm. And um, I also, like, my... My grandma's side of the family is from that region of Germany. So I want to hike all day and then drink in the beer gardens all night. And that is, that is my dream. And I'm really, really hoping 2022 <laughs> I can get there. Just traveling in general right now. I, I booked a trip at the end of April to Michigan and I'm looking nice. forward to it so much. And I love Michigan. Haven't been going to Kalamazoo for a night. Check out Bells, some of the other ones. My dog's name is Oberon, so it would make oh, sense. I need yeah. to visit Bells. Um, then I'm going to go up to Sagatok for a couple nights, so all the ones around okay. there. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, that'll be so nice. First time hitting up Michigan for all the breweries, so I'm very excited. Michigan uh, beer is great. Yes, it is. Very kind of underrated, but like the, well, not the big ones, but some of the smaller ones. Yeah, it's also so pretty. Like Michigan, people don't realize how beautiful some of the the lakes are there. And yeah, yeah and I've, I'm like I said, I've never spent time in Michigan or on any of the lakes, so this will be my first time, you know, seeing it. I guess other than flying over it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and then, who would you most love to have a beer with? If you could go to your closest brew pub, brewery, and that a person would walk in, who would you want it to be? Uh, living, dead anyone uh, let's go living okay damn <laughs> okay you, okay how about you give me your debt a dead and a living i dead i would love to have a beer with um 
Edward Gorey. He's an artist. I don't know. Uh, not familiar. If you look him up, he's incredible. He's also just like a wacky artist. I would I would love to have a beer with Edward Gorey. Living, um, I want to have a beer with AOC. <laughs> I would probably die of like fangirling, <laughs> but uh, she just seems like she'd be so fun. Um, so we could talk about like politics, but then we could also, I want her to teach me about like makeup and stuff. So um, yeah, AOC, call me if you want to grab a beer. It's funny, the most people like have said on here have been politicians, which I guess we're just thinking about them a lot lately. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's some some really awesome female politicians that are doing some great things. So it's easy yeah. to pick them. Plus, like, who wouldn't want to have a beer with Bernie or Barack Obama, especially right now? Totally. So totally. Ooh, Bernie would be good too. Yeah. Talk yeah. about him going viral as a meme. Yeah, talk about those mittens. <laughs> I could use those mittens right now looking outside because <laughs> it is all just ice. Um, but yeah, uh, Edward Gorey, his stuff looks familiar. Are they children's books or am I going crazy? No, they're kind of children's books. They're like very dark children's books. Um, and he's done some illustrations for um, like sets for Broadway plays. And he's just, uh, he has this very distinct style which yes. i feel is just out there in pop culture so you've probably just like yeah it as soon as i googled him his stuff looked very familiar yeah so. uh but he's a wild dude his um yeah like his biography is fantastic anyway edward gory uh, well i know what i will be reading as soon as we end this <laughs> podcast <laughs> well kate thank you very much for hopping on this podcast with me i really appreciate it and um I hope no more chickens are passed on in the next, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you don't lose uh, any more chickens in the next couple of weeks before you get some more. Thank you. I appreciate that. And this was so nice, Kenzie. I really appreciate um, you having me. And I, I'm really grateful for your podcast and the work that you do. And um, I love listening to it. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. <laughs>